Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Dining with Our Ancestors. Today we join the Vikings for a feast upon Lindisfarne. The wrath of an icy North Sea lay but a fingertip's reach as a long, narrow boat cut through the water as an arrow. The chop, the sway and the unencountered for spray of the passage put seasoning on the starter, a light warm-up before the main course. This pre-match treat had them salivating and ready to feed, whereas the tranquility of their destination left its inhabitants blissfully unaware that service had begun, never mind that the main course was due to be served. This is how one of the most successful band of warriors fueled their taking of a land which had not been conquered since the Romans, as they devoured the monk population of Lindisfarne in one gulp. You can expect to learn what the Vikings took as supplies for raids, and how was the food and hierarchy linked? What did a traditional monk meal look like, and how was this interrupted? How food was preserved and prepared on the longboats? What was the impetus for the Viking expansion, and how is this linked to agriculture and diet? How did the monk diet and lifestyle more broadly change when living under Viking rule? Does a Viking diet adapt once they conquer their new territory? We'll begin on the famous longboat. Around 28 to 30 metres in length, the ships could hold around 100 men. The attack on Lindisfarne in 793 was the first recorded Viking raid in England and in Europe more broadly, and its importance is signalled by the strange incidents that accompany it in a historical record. The events of the year are described thus in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Quote, Here were dreadful forewarnings come over the land of Northumbria, and woefully terrified the people. These were amazing sheets of lightning and whirlwinds, and fiery dragons were seen flying in the sky. A great famine soon followed these signs, and shortly after in the new year, on the sixth day before the Ides of January, the woeful inroads of heathen men destroyed God's church in Lindisfarne Island by fierce robbery and slaughter. End quote. These seafaring pagan warriors had the northeast of England's coastline in their sight, who stood where in the pecking order meant not only who did what jobs en route, but who got the lion's share of the food on boats and the spoils post-raid. The Norwegian Gulletang law is the most in-depth text about organisation and hierarchy on board the longships in the Viking Age. It includes several passages about the building process, manning the fleet, rules for the skipper, Steersman and cook and war equipment. Top of the tree, the steersman in Viking times was a ship's owner and had military command, whereas the skippari, the skipper, was the next in command or an ordinary member of the crew. The skipper and the helmsman, just like 1,000 years ago, have overall responsibility for the ship, the crew and equipment, and for making sure the ship reaches its destination. I can't imagine Captain Lee in a Viking helmet though. Old Norwegian legal texts speak of the rules for ordinary members of the crew on warships in Viking times. What we would call today deckhands, these young men chosen by the seersmen had no choice about sailing, had fixed watches and often had to supply the ship's weapons. These made up the bulk of the crew, each fixed their arms to an oar and perpetually motioned in churning themselves in the direction required. This arduous and repetitive dragging themselves across the globe via the seven seas 
was strenuous and monotonous for the hands. Fingers on the sea-sprayed oar, frosted into grip by the sub-zero breath of the gods. Rocking, knees towards you, heave backwards, momentary respite, repeat, for hours. There was an element of rotation between the hands. These tasks were such as to trim the sail, to keep the boat empty of water, to keep watch and steer the rudder. Together with the skipper and the coxswains, the lookout had a responsible position on board, especially when sailing along the coast where it was more important to keep an eye out for distinctive landmarks. On this day, they were on the lookout for just this. Yet, so far, the husky fog condensed the blue carpet of the sea, obscuring the horizon, so the lookout squinted his eyes in the general direction England should be appearing just to look as if he is occupied, whilst his teammates toil. All this physical activity must have you wondering, surely they didn't take this passage without any food. At an average speed of 8 knots, which the captain would be aiming for unscrupulously, the passage should take 3-6 to six days. With the low visibility and choppy waters greasing the terrain over the past few days, they are on day 5. They are expecting to spot the coastline at any moment. There was another batch of workers I did not introduce you to. The cook. He had a lot of hungry stomachs to cater for. Since there was no fireplace on Viking warships, it was unlikely the cook could prepare hot meals on board. Yet, Norwegian legal texts contain regulations about three daily trips ashore for the cook. One, to collect water. Two, to prepare meals. When voyages permitted, warships took their bearings from points along the coasts. If you've ever looked at a map, you would do well to realise this could not be one of those trips. So what did they eat? They had a full day of thieving and pillaging ahead of them. We couldn't let them go hungry. Surprisingly, although portrayed for their savagery, there were several laws in place to protect the warriors on board. If only their moral code of conduct extended beyond the hull. The cook had been working away in his small section of the boat, tucked away at the back so as to not taunt the hands with his preparations. He had a treat for them today, as he loaded up the classic nest dish. This he made in a large riveted pot, the mixing often done in a sea-jerking motion. It is what they had yesterday, and the day before, and the day before but the tiresome hands would have eaten an arm off one another if they'd had to. Essentially, the dish was a porridge. Without a boiler or a microwave in sight, it was to be eaten cold. Yum. The cook was just slopping out the farthest as the captain's whistle signified a halt of procedure. A short time to cook the food. Magnus Erlingsson's saga is one of the main literary accounts that is depended on for day-to-day life on a longboat. It says that besides porridge, ship provisions also included flour and butter. Naturally, foods that would last the journey, but were also cheap enough to make the journey economical. It is also said sometimes they took some dried slices of halibut, dried cod and bread. This gives the idea of a gruelling diet a gourmet edge as far as I'm concerned. Meat, as a general rule, was not served on board and today was no different. 
The hands were predominantly young, unmarried sons of farmers, lacking wealth and status, but not short of desire. Meat was traditionally served on board only for higher skilled Vikings, as boiled or roasted meat was seldom a part of the provisions, only where the slaughter of farm animals was permitted. On higher ranking warships, you could feasibly get a meaty meal. I guess some are more equal than others. Viking law stipulated the rations which the hands were to be fed. The cook was responsible for the dissecting and appropriate conservation of this, which he stored in close proximity to his pot. For each man on board, he kept a daily ration of 880 grams of flour, 285 grams of butter, and is just over a kilogram of food per person, which can only be viewed as quite a lot about what a man needs for considerable physical activity. So although the hands stared at high loads of exertion, they were well catered for by their own pagan warlords. As the back few rows had ceased aiding the propelling forwards of the boats, the captain barked harder at the remaining hands. Those eating were presented with an opportunity to stretch out their fragile finger ends, alternating between hands gripping the spoon to get some respite. A moment for contemplation, as they tried to make out the land they had been promised lay beyond the grey curtain, only intensified the pincers of their icicles in their rosy cheeks. Had they really had to leave home and search for a place they weren't sure even existed for this? The cook came down the aisle offering a cup to his left, a cup to his right, filled with water as if a priest passing peace offerings to his procession. No sooner than the contemplation was broken, the cup had been picked up, knocked back and placed back down, as if the lunching hands were feeding on the opportunity for thought as delightfully as their dinner. The water the cook too was responsible for, brought on board in barrels or troughs. In the Norwegian shipgraves, Osberg and Gokstad, large troughs were found that could hold 500 and 750 litres and several sources mentioned that there had to be a minimum of 4 litres per person per day. One would imagine the large reserves accounted not only for the level of exercise, but also for extra days where travel was slow, or they veered off course. Without apparatus to convert seawater into drinking water, many shipmen would have died of dehydration this way. Another benefit to a limited diet on a colonising expedition is the hunting on a hungry stomach in case you're planning one. The more ferocious their appetite, the more flesh-wounding their bite. The Vikings, not on this boat, but their leaders and tradesmen, had traded with the Anglo-Saxons for many years. Their motivations for this mission were not clear even to the captain. Among them, the unmarried hands whispered of foreign fancies, beautiful women who they would be able to take home as new brides in an ascent towards status. The Viking men of high enough status, such as the captain, tended to have many wives, these polygamous relationships meaning at times there was a shortage of women for the Viking population to mate with. This could have contributed to the Viking expansion, in part. The structure of polygamous marriage increases male-to-male competition necessarily, creating a pool of unmarried men, such as the deckhands on our boat, who were willing to engage in risky status elevation, in order to raise their stature and spread their genes. Whether this was a primary motivation for expansion is questioned, 
although they did tend to take women from their native land home with them. A secondary theory is that there was an ideological quest or revenge of their pagan ancestors. Penetration of Christianity into Scandinavia caused considerable divide in Norway for almost a century. Yet, the Vikings targeted not a Frankish kingdom, which would support this theological thesis, but the monasteries of the north coast of England first, which suggests, quite fittingly, that they were targeting the rich resources of farmland and food that were abundant in the region. By now, the rotation of lunches had swung to the hands on the front of the ship, as they too had licked their bowls clean and were readying their extremities for an onslaught of extreme weather. The captain signalled for a commence in rowing, as the wind chill increased fastidiously as they got back up to speed, something like operating a gym rowing machine in an ice bath. The men instead decided to transcend their physical environment, dreaming of an evergreen coastline, ale and enough pigs to slaughter that they would be able to eat a whole hog each. The hours seemed to trickle by as they oared their way through eternity until finally the fog began to lift slightly. The captain roars at the sight of the shore. They were the first in a ten-boat convoy, creeping ever nearer as the 200 or so hands on the range of ships gleamed at the potential of a new land and what it may offer them. Inside a dimly lit corner of the Lindisfarne Monastery, a single row of candles down a long oak table lit up the the bowed, bald heads as a silence ensued. Blessings before any meal was a ritual never to be abandoned, nothing short of blasphemy. Lindisfarne is intimately connected with the Christianity in Britain. In 635, the Northumbrian king Oswald summoned an Irish monk named Aidan from Iona, the island monastery off the southwest coast of what is now Scotland, to be bishop of his kingdom. Oswald granted Aidan and his companions the small tidal island of Lindisfarne on which to found a monastery. That is where we are now. Sometime in the 670s, a monk named Cusper joined the monastery at Lindisfarne. He eventually became Lindisfarne's greatest monk bishop, the man the monks had just dedicated their pre-meal blessings to in unison. Cusbert died on the 20th of March 687 and was buried in a stone coffin inside the main church on Lindisfarne. Eleven years later, the monks opened his tomb to their delight. They discovered that Cusbert's body had not decayed, but was incorrupt. A sure sign, they argued, of his purity and saintliness. Soon, miracles began to be reported in the area, and it began a centre of pilgrimage, meaning it soon became endowed in funds and riches. Prayer time had been extremely important due to the sweeping superstition across the north of England as Anglo-Saxon writers in the months before the raid recalled how immense whirlwinds, flashes of lightning and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air. They thought these aerial phenomena were portents of imminent disaster. They were not completely wrong. They raised their heads, the silence broken by the Bible reading as a backdrop to drown out the sounds of one another eating. The monks traditionally ate one meal a day, 
a spiritual practice rather than a diet of deficiency, as being less concerned with needs of the flesh and more oriented towards their spiritual practices was a necessary payoff. The diet was largely vegetarian, with only fish being allowed, eggs and other delicacies on special occasions. If you, like I, do not consider egg a delicacy, I would not recommend switching to a hard monk diet anytime soon. Today, as most days, they were hunched over their thick, porridge-like soup, trying their utmost not to imagine a delicacy such as an egg accompanying it. The droning verse of Corinthians 3 aided the removal of temptations. A recipe I could not exactly find, if you are interested in recreating such a scene for Christmas, but any root vegetable soup, poorly seasoned and especially watery, will suffice. Maybe your grandma has just a recipe. That was not all, however. These were men of esteem, not savages. They know that hearty soup, if it could be labelled as such, must be accompanied by warm, crusty bread. The overcompensation of the thinness of the soup came up trumps when how dialed up the crust of the bread was, as one brave monk felt accomplished enough to try and break his loaf in two rather than let it sogify in his bowl. He soon learned a lesson he already knew. Alternatively, the gallon of wheat beer these monks consumed each day could be used as a dunking bowl, and it often was. The wheat beer was an important source of hydration, energy and nutrients on what was otherwise a very limited diet. Finally, the bread-soup combination would be rounded off with vegetables grown in the gardens around the monastery. These included leeks, peas, beans, cabbages, of which did not make it into the soup, but would make it onto a side plate. They dined in silence, some gazing at the heavens up above, some peering through the stained glass windows at a carpet of darkness that was the North Sea. Only slightly less dark today, as a minute flickering orange burnt through the usually emerald glass. The monk that spotted this had a focus other than the sound of silence momentarily, but tasked his mind instead on the remaining soup in his bowl. The bowls emptied and were stacked to the dismay of the silence. Slowly, they began to filter out back towards their evening prayer duties, apart from the one who spotted a glint in the window. He remained fixated on what was now a bigger glow, and several more of them. It could not be the glass, he wondered. In his now quickening panic, he walked briskly to the bishop's quarters, who had retired for post in a prayer, to get some answers. The encroaching boats had caught the sight of land just before dusk was to snap it away from them, so they had to move quickly. Having heard ornate monasteries of England, those who were untravelled amongst them looked towards a religious site in awe. What struck the chiefs among them was a surplus green grass as they neared, able to make out the flocks of sheep and the herds of cows. Their agricultural endeavours would be promised if they overtook this new-found land, just as they had been promised. All they had to do was overcome the people who occupied it. 
that the riches and the food that laid in it would be theirs for generations to come. At the shore, the kitting up process began. Swords, shields and whatever armour was brought with them were distributed effectively. They were not to be aware of what sort of resistance they were to be met with. They knew England as a place they had traded with, somewhere with regions of moderate wealth and had assumed there may be a battle on their hands. The hundreds of them lumbered out of the long wooden boats. The beach light was fading, as they spot a ragged cliff ahead with an ornate torchlit target atop of it. The chief waited till all his men were ashore, then sent the order to follow him. He did not need to tell them where. The bland taste of nothingness had not long left the mouths of the many monks before it was replaced with the imminent chowing down of bloodshed. All alerted, they ran as if wound up toys, circling back on themselves to the very position they began. Some peered out of a non-stained glass window, alerting the others of the now encroaching mass of pagan men who were set to land at the monastery door any moment. Others collapse in prayer, while some ran to retrieve the most sacred possessions of the church in an attempt to save them and themselves. With little language in common, they would not be able to reason with their attackers. As pacifists, it was impossible that they could fight back against the onslaught. In many ways, attacking the crown jewel of English religion was the perfect target. The pagans have desecrated God's sanctuary, shed the blood of saints around the altar. They've laid waste the house of our hope and trampled the bodies of saints like dung in the streets. What assurance can the churches of Britain have if Saint Cuthbert and so great a many saints do not defend their own? End quote. Alcuin of York, quote, Lo, it is nearly 350 years that we and our fathers have inhabited this most lovely land, and never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we have suffered from a pagan race, nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Behold the church of St. Cuthbert, spattered with the blood of the priests of God, despoiled of all its ornaments, a place more venerable than all in Britain, is given as prey to pagan people. What should be expected for other places when the divine judgment has not spared this holy place. End quote. It was not only that the monks were completely unprepared and unresponsive to the attack, but the effect it had on Britain as a whole. It shattered the pre-existing schema about divine protection, namely that if their most sacred spot was up for grabs, what did that mean for the everyday person? So before we outline what the Vikings got when they came here, how about how they got it? How savage was their appetite? The cutthroat swashbuckling began. The robes and pacifism of God's soldiers were no match for arrows, spears and swords. The monastery went from an agreed upon religious site to a satanic ritual within hours. The monks were killed, enslaved, drowned or imprisoned. Any nuns were raped, killed enslaved, drowned or imprisoned. Their produce 
their ancient texts, their sacraments, decimated. Centuries of tradition eradicated in one evening. Everything you learned about the Vikings as savages in school was true. In a time where Brutus Shavri was rewarded, they were simply the best at it. The screams and the smell of burning tinged the sea air at Linda's farm, even today. The few monks that survived had ranging conspiracies as to why their holy centre was the seat of such an attack. Alquin details that one blemish they brought on the monastery was glory in the vanity of dress, as they raked their consciences to decipher what had stopped God from intervening. His account continues, Do not go out after the indulgences of the flesh and the greed of the world. Stand firm in the service of God and discipline of the monastic life. It is difficult not to feel empathy for what remained of these people after basing their, their personality, structure and belief system around a deity which failed to protect them. This left them nothing but to denigrate themselves as to why they were not saved. Another reason Alquin posits is drinking too much beer. Monks from as young as seven, according to reports, were taken away by the Norsemen and sold as slaves. To which Alquin said, When our Lord King Charles returns from defeating his enemies, by God's mercy, I plan to go to him, and if I can then do anything for you about the boys who have been carried off by the pagans as prisoners or about any of your other needs, I shall make every effort to see that it is done. In conclusion, Alquin tells his fellow monks, Do not be dismayed by this disaster. God chastises every son whom he accepts, so perhaps he chastises you more because he loves you more. Because nothing says compassion like overwatching the trampling of your mates' bodies into the altar. If attacks were a measure of God's compassion in Northumberland, then Alquin was right, as the attacks came flooding in over the decades. Before we return to how the Vikings used their new land, let's quickly sketch a portrait of the new life that awaited the enslaved monk. His swilling of bland soup and being contained only by the monastery walls was good training for the young monk, and as some of the boats that landed at Lindisfarne returned to deliver the slavesmen to their new sanctuary. One Viking account on slaves said, the slave could own nothing, inherit nothing, and leave nothing. Unpaid, the monks would shed their divine skin, in public at least, and it was impossible to buy back their own freedom. As it was possible they could be manumitted at any time, it is debated how intense slavery was in Viking society. Yet, due to the additional analysis of European records, this number is believed to be high. The only crossover which would serve the monk well in his new life is how used he was to a carte blanche diet. Did the Vikings get the agricultural possibilities that they seeked? Could they revise? Could they improve their diet to fuel the society for further pirating raids across Europe. The harsh, bitter winters of Scandinavia made crop growing and maintaining animals rather difficult, hence a large motivator for them to conquer southwards. Those barbaric enough to slaughter in pursuit of their own ends would certainly eat anything, described by native English at the time as gluttonous.
In a poem about Harbin and Thor, in which they travel in pursuit of food, a typical Viking meal is described as I ate in peace before I left home. Herrings and oatmeal, so I still am full. Surely we Brits had more to offer than just herring and oatmeal. The boats that returned to the motherland with slaves would now successfully made the passage back to Northumbria with the families of the highest-ranking warlords. Any nearby shelter is being repurposed. Down with the pictures of St Cuthbert and up with the hammer of Thor. The captain of the boat's wife sat stewing over a cauldron. The chatter of Nordic children bouncing at a rate just beating the simmering of the pot. Her husband sits opposite, looking across at the once again mysteriously placid North Sea. The morning Dagmar was long forgotten, and after weeks of pillaging, her husband had a streakily ferocious appetite. Still, having slain the animals that belonged to nearby farmers, he had come back with a prized dinner and a feast of sorts was in order. To celebrate their safe passage, the new land, but mainly to eat it all before it went off. She boiled the cut into the stew, tapered with vegetables and wild greens. Bread was baked on flat stones, fumigating the room with the taste of victory, of accomplishment. After the feast was engulfed, quite how easily her husband slept that night, and for nights to come, as he stared out across the ferocious mighty of the North Sea, in fear that one day, maybe his loved ones would be subject to the same fate he had enforced on others, for the taste of a big feast at the end of it. Thank you very much for listening. Um, if you enjoyed, please share with a friend. Um, if you wish to contact me, there's, you can do so in the show notes below. Uh, thank you once again. Take care.